Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen, gentlemen. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Today, uh, two guests, two really interesting people in um, the sort of the coverage of uh, sports and news. First up is ESPN's Don Van Natta. He is an investigative reporter for ESPN. Work has appeared across uh, that company's platforms. You've certainly read his stuff. Uh, I am sure if you're a sports fan on the NFL. He has a new docuseries called Backstory, which debuts on August 18th. It's an in-depth look on some of the more controversial things in sports. This first one is Serena versus the umpire, and that is about the Serena Williams-Naomi Osaka match at the uh, U.S. Open where things went uh, haywire for everybody. He is followed by Chelsea Janes of the Washington Post. She, in January, moved from uh, covering the Washington Nationals as their longtime beat reporter to covering the 2020 presidential uh, campaign. And so uh, we talked to Chelsea about how that transition has been, and she has made one of the more interesting moves, I think, in sort of sports journalism, going from covering the Nationals to covering the Kamala Harris campaign. So first up, Don Van Natta, then Chelsea Janes on the Sports Media Podcast. Don Van Natta is an investigative reporter whose work appears across ESPN platforms, including Outside the Line, ESPN.com. For the purposes of this podcast, he is the host of the new docuseries, Backstory, whose debut episode, Serena vs. the Umpire, launches Sunday, August 18th at 1 p.m. Eastern, 1.30 Pacific on ABC, with multiple re-airs following across ESPN networks. It's like I've joined the ESPN PR team, Don Van Natta. And Don Van Natta joins me on the Sports Media Podcast. Don, welcome. Thank you, Richard. Great to be with you. It's a long time coming, Don. I think we've talked about this for a long time. We have for years. For years. <laughs> Before we get to backstory, I want to start here. How would you compare covering counterterrorism, campaign finance abuses, and the phone hacking scandal at Rupert Murdoch's News of the World in London to covering NFL owners? I think that those stories and covering the White House and the Pentagon, everything I did at the New York Times as an investigative reporter for 16 years was the perfect preparation for covering one of the most secretive organizations in America, the National Football League. I mean, I think it was the perfect preparation uh, doing what I did, covering news, covering all those very difficult secret organizations um, in the United States to cover what I believe is is one of the most secretive and one of the most difficult to cover, and that's the NFL. So now, I, I, I mean, obviously I asked that tongue-in-cheek, but now I want to get serious. What makes the NFL so difficult to cover uh, in terms of really – the NFL is not difficult to cover, I think, in terms of the transactional, what we see on the field. But in terms of the kind of reporting that you've done, what happens in the boardroom, what happens at the highest finance – level of that league. Why is it so difficult? Because the owners are a very elite, secretive club. They call themselves the membership for a reason. These are 32 billionaires or 31 billionaires, of course, and the Packers who uh, conduct all their business behind closed doors, their real business. There's clicks, there's uh, arguments, there's uh, scores to settle that they don't want the public to know about. Um, and it was my job, it still is my job at ESPN, to try to dig into that and tell those stories. Uh, I've had a lot of help, uh, teamed up for years with Seth Wickersham, who's really coming to his own uh, as a terrific investigative reporter in his own right. And it was our job to find out 
what happened behind those closed doors on sensitive topics like, you know, the national anthem controversy in 2017 is an example. And I think that autumn, Seth and I were able to really tell readers and the public a lot of what was going behind closed doors, which the NFL doesn't want people to know about. So I've always seen that as my job, Richard, uh, from the very beginning, since I was at the Miami Herald as a cub reporter coming up, but as an investigative reporter, it's my job to try to tell people things that they don't want the public to know. And that uh, is tested constantly trying to cover the boardroom and, uh, and the owners in the National Football League. Don, this is something that we've talked about a lot, sort of as, as the kids would say, offline, and that's ESPN's <laughs> commitment to journalism as the company heads forward. You are probably about as good a, um, I would say, zealot, zealot for ESPN in terms of the belief that the company is going to continue to invest resources in covering things. And I'm not just talking about, again, sort of um, the day-to-day stuff. ESPN will always cover that. But the kind of stories that really um, that really have impact, but more importantly, um, counter to the partnerships that ESPN has with these leagues. And that's the kind of stuff, concussions in the NFL, the kind of stuff, um, like you mentioned, sort of what the owners are doing. I'll ask you direct, why do you believe ESPN is still committed to journalism full stop in 2019? Because I believe there is a full commitment to journalism. Jimmy Pitaro has made that commitment. um, And Connor Schell, the head of content, has made that commitment. We have Christopher Buckle, who's the head of our investigative team, who's, uh, I believe, one of the best investigative editors in the country. I've worked for him since 2012. We have an amazing team of talent, uh, aggressive reporters and journalists who want to get the truth. And we're going to continue to do you know, what we've always done. Richard, you know this. We've talked about this offline. As you've said, when I joined ESPN in 2012, after being at the New York Times for 16 years, I asked a lot of questions of the executives of whether I was going to be given free reign to look deeply into the business partners of the network. I was given that assurance at the time by John Skipper and John Walsh. Those two guys aren't here. They've they've been replaced, but the people who've replaced them believe just as deeply in our commitment to investigative reporting. The resources are there. Think about this, Richard. The, The resources that ESPN has are extraordinary that they devote to investigative reporting. You know, the team of reporters that just won a Peabody Award and did the incredible reporting on Michigan State and that entire scandal, uh, they worked on that, you know, Paul Levine and, and the team that did that, John Barr, my colleagues that did incredible work, there's many others. Uh, that was a one- to two-year commitment on that story that paid dividends for viewers and for readers. And I believe we're going to continue to do that. And you're going to see there's a lot of incredible work that's in the works right now that will be coming out in the coming weeks and months. And uh, and so I believe the commitment has not wavered one bit uh, from the moment I stepped into the network uh, at two, in 2012. All right, we're going to get back to that. Uh, but I want to get to your new docuseries, which I know you're really excited about. I saw the first episode, which I really, really liked. Obviously, I covered tennis at Sports Illustrated for a long, long time, so I'm invested in the sport. And Serena versus the umpire, the umpire in this case, Carlos Ramos, the famous match now, Naomi Osaka versus Serena Williams at the U.S. Open, the final, was really, really fascinating. Rather than me describe what this is, Don, 
uh, I will let you describe this for my listeners. How would you describe Backstory? What is it? Backstory is the looking behind the scenes and trying to explore the story behind the story you think you already know. Uh, It really is an attempt in one hour of television uh, in a documentary style film to go back to a story, uh, either a sports controversy or a sports scandal, and through fresh reporting, really through a journalism journey that I go on, try to find out new information, fresh context to give you a much deeper perspective on something that happened that you may have made up your mind about in a matter of moments, like uh, the U.S. Women's Open last year. I mean, that blew up on social media, as you know, and people got siloed very quickly and either took the side of Serena Williams or took the side of the chair umpire, uh, chair umpire Carlos Ramos very quickly. Uh, you've seen the episode. What we attempted to do in this premiere episode of Backstory is to really slow everything down and give you the backstory of the umpire, talk a little bit about Serena's backstory and what she brought that day to that court with her history at the U.S. Open. She had three different clashes with chair umpires or, or lines people that was in her head, and she made reference to it as she was clashing with Ramos during those three code violations, and just really slow stories down. There's not enough of that kind of reporting, and I'm lucky, uh, Richard, and why I'm so thrilled about Backstory, to be given the time and the resources. We have five episodes we're doing in the first season of Backstory. This is the first uh, to really delve deeply and give viewers um, what I hope is new information and fresh perspective and insight into these stories they think they already know. All right, Don, your first episode is tennis. It starts with Serena Williams, Carlos Ramos. Um, as much as many of us love tennis, there are certainly bigger sports to consider, whether it's the NFL or college football, to really maybe give your first episode that much more viewership potential with uh, uh, you know, a sport that just basically draws more people in. What was your thought process in terms of starting with Serena versus another story? Well, really, it was timing. Uh, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of the match, and we had this episode ready. We wanted to be um, you know, timed to the one-year anniversary of what was the ugliest finish in Grand Slam history, as Scott Price of Sports Illustrated says in the episode. Uh, we have four other episodes that we've been reporting since late last fall, shortly after the first season of Backstory got greenlit by Connor Shell. Uh, and, uh, and we're looking forward to, um, those coming out later this year and early next year. But really, Richard, it was just a matter of a time peg that we wanted to hit and have this episode ready and out, uh, before the one year anniversary of last year's U.S. Open. So you mentioned on there's five episodes, will they be running, uh, in consecutive weeks starting with Sunday, August 18th? No, not, not, not anywhere close to that. The next episode, uh, is the banning of Shoeless Joe. So we're going back to the Black Sox scandal. It's the 100th anniversary of that, of course, this year. And we're drawing a through line between Shoeless Joe, what happened with the Black Sox scandal, and the banning of Pete Rose 70 years later, all the way to 2019, and Major League Baseball's embrace of legalized gambling. And I'm really excited about that episode. Nearly all the interviews are done. We've got the script. We're putting it together. That uh, episode will debut on October 13th, also on ABC, and then go uh, 
you know, in time for the World Series and then be available on the ESPN platforms and, and re-airs, a bunch of re-airs on ESPN. The third episode will be early next year. That'll be the catfishing of Manti Teo, uh, which mm-hmm. initially was going to be our first episode, but is now our third episode, and that'll come out early next year. I don't have a date for that. And then we have two other episodes, Richard. We haven't announced what those subjects are, but they'll uh, air uh, in 2020. Don, how do you know when the show is over? How do you know when the investigation for the show is done? You never know. And, I'm, and, I've, and I've still been doing reporting. We're locking down Sunday's episode, the episode that's debuting on ABC on Sunday, tomorrow night. And I was still reporting yesterday. Um, I, any investigative story I've ever done, Richard, in my career, I'm always reporting and gathering information up until the last possible moment to make it as complete as possible. And that hasn't changed for backstory. So, you know, the, the episode will come out and uh, I may get new information and hear things and wish that I could have had that in the 51 and a half minutes uh, of our first backstory. You never really know. And you're never really satisfied. You always feel there's another phone call you can make another email. You can send another text you can send to try to get another piece of information to give uh, a fuller picture uh, of a complicated story. One of the things, Don, that struck me was there's a lot of ESPN people who are interviewed for the Serena one. And that might be a product of tennis, whether it's Pam Shriver, Chris Everett. Those are obviously prominent tennis people who were uh, calling the match at a couple people, uh, including Clinton Yates from The Undefeated. It, it, do you, are you, have you been given a charter to use ESPN people when it comes to either B-roll or interviews or was it just the case in this one because it's tennis and because ESPN owns the rights to the majors? I think it's more the latter, Richard. I think it's the fact that ESPN uh, did the broadcast of the women's final at the U S open last year. You know, we have, we have the rights um, and uh, obviously getting Chrissy Everett to sit down and Pam Schreiber, Chrissy called the match. Pam was the courtside reporter There are a couple of other ESPN people that I interviewed. I really wanted to hear Clinton Yates' voice. He's somebody I've gotten to know well. He's a colleague. We've been on Outside the Lines Friday 4 together frequently, and I I wanted to get his perspective. But but there will be ESPN people, I think, in future episodes, um, particularly when we're dealing, for instance, like with the Manti Teo scandal. I mean, ESPN covered that. So, uh, and... um, and, and, and basically it got hoodwinked by that irresistible story in the autumn of 2012 in the same way that Sports Illustrated did and the rest of the media. So we're going to have to we'll have to you know, wrestle with that. And I think we will have some ESPN folks that way. But I, I don't see the show. I want to be really clear. I don't see the show necessarily as an ombudsman type show or looking necessarily completely at the way the media covers it. I think there'll be a little bit of that. But I'm also interested as much as we can is to get the protagonist who are involved in these stories to talk as well. And we've had some success uh, for these upcoming episodes to get those folks to sit down with us on camera as well. But as you know, Richard, I'm not an access journalist. I've, I've kind of pride myself of being able to get a story, uh, even if the people that I'm writing about don't talk to me. When I did the profile in 2013 of Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, I asked him to sit down with me five separate times for that profile. He said no every time. And I still think I you know, came up with a pretty comprehensive deep dive look at Goodell uh, as a leader of the NFL in that, in that moment. So that same sort of um, ethos is, I think, animating backstory. Serena Williams didn't sit down with us for this episode, nor did Carlos Ramos, the chair umpire. 
Uh, we didn't see that as a make or break decision of whether we were going to do the story. We, we did it anyway. And I think as uh, viewers will find out, we found out a lot uh, about both of them and how um, they approached that match and also um, how the aftermath occurred and, and, and how both of them dealt with the aftermath of the match as well. All right, Don, I want to go, uh, I want to do a number of different subjects here. We'll sort of, um, there's, there's going to be no rhyme or reason to these questions. They're going to cover a lot of different topics. Uh, I've had a couple of Pulitzer Prize winners, including yourself on this podcast. So I, I want to take advantage of that because there's certainly a lot of young people who, uh, who listen to this. Um, as a general overview question, Don, what are the most important traits a sports reporter can or should have and why? Um, I think now it's a willingness to uh, take on any task and to try to be as good as you can possibly be uh, on multiple platforms and have an ability to sort of pivot when you need to pivot. Um, the media is changing so rapidly. I started in 1987 at the Miami Herald. Uh, I'm an old print guy. Uh, it's a completely different business from when I started. And you have to have uh, the willingness and the openness to um, doing as many things as possible, taking as many things on. And, as, and as Richard, as you know, in this business, it's all about reps. It's all about um, getting the experience um, to really stand out and to try to find your voice. And so I think the most important skill, and I, I talk to college students often, is to uh, try as many things as possible. Be willing, if you get hired for one particular job, if there's another opportunity to do something that's Maybe maybe a little bit uh, not in your lane and maybe something that maybe scares you a little bit or you don't have much experience, but you see it possibly as a, as a good way um, or a fast path, faster pathway for a future where you know you're going to keep your job. Because, of course, that's very important, too, in such a perilous time in the industry to be able to do that. Don, how do you get better at asking questions? You listen. The, the, the most important thing for an interviewer is to listen, listen carefully, not just listen, but watch, watch cues, physical cues, um, an uncomfortable moment, um, you know, reading between the lines often of what the person you're interviewing is not saying or hinting at and being able to pick up on that in real time and then ask the question off of that. It's, it, it's a very difficult skill. It takes a lot of time to develop it. I feel like I'm still learning it, uh, particularly now in this new lane. Richard is you know, doing interviews now. I've done nearly 50 on-camera interviews for the Backstory series. Um, prior to this, I'd only done a couple of TV pieces for ESPN, a Jerry Jones profile in 2014, and a, and a couple of others. And it's, a, it's different to interview somebody on camera than it is when you're just sitting, let's say, in a bar with just a notebook um, or a tape recorder. Um, but it's, it, it really is the ability to listen. You have to do your homework, too. It's so important to go into any interview and try to read as much as you can about the person you're about to interview, the subject that you're about to ask the questions about. The more uh, institutional knowledge you have on a person that you're about to talk with or about a subject you're about to ask someone about, and, and preferably both, the better it is. And, and I found over my career, um, you know, a lot of journalists don't do that. 
part of it is because they don't have the time. And I want to be really clear about this. Obviously, if you've, you've got five stories you're filing in a day, it's, it's hard to do that. There's no doubt. And I, as a cub reporter, was writing three stories a day at the Miami Herald. It was hard. But the people you're interviewing oftentimes are pretty savvy. They are used to dealing with reporters. They can sense instantly the reporter that has done his or her homework and the one that hasn't. And you want to be the one that is totally prepared as best as you can be in the amount of time you have to prepare to do an interview to ask uh, those smart questions and listen. And when you listen, and the, and the final thing, and this is an intangible, is curiosity. If you, if you have an innate curiosity uh, as a journalist um, and you naturally enjoy being around people and, and, and also the people you interview, um, if, even, if, even if you find a way you can make somebody laugh um, or um, be just naturally curious about somebody beyond the four squares of what you have to ask questions about, that counts for a lot, too. You'd be surprised. You know, when I was at the New York Times, I used to hear sometimes colleagues of mine in the Washington Bureau asking questions in such a methodical way, almost as if they were pro- a prosecutor asking somebody on a witness stand, not, not making somebody at ease early on in the call or anything like that, just very little touch at times. And I, I try to make somebody at ease very early on, and, and that goes a long way uh, in you know, the more comfortable you're, you're, the person you're interviewing is and the more they trust you and trust the, um, the homework that you bring to it, uh, I think the better the interview will go. How do you know when someone is lying to you? Well, that's a, that's a great question, Richard. You know, sometimes you don't know, but uh, oftentimes it's gut. Oftentimes it's just instinct of the way somebody will say it. Or, and even over the phone sometimes you can tell. But certainly when you're with somebody, there's, there's cues that are given that will give you a clue. And, and then if you have that instinct uh, that someone's lying, then the important thing is to try to figure out if, if they are and, and to go in and dig deeply and, and to figure out if they are. Um, but it's, um, it, that's not easy. Um, but one thing I've learned being in the business 30 years is you do get lied to pretty frequently. Uh, or, or you get put down a path, uh, that's not the right path, uh, by somebody. Um, and you just have to, again, through reps and through experience, um, work hard at trying to figure that out. And, and obviously if you catch somebody doing that, you need to report it. Don, I want to ask you about social media and particularly Twitter, which you are very active on. Um, you're an interesting person to talk, uh, to about this because, Given your background at the New York Times and given your news side background, you're witnessing in real time a lot of your colleagues who are covering the White House or covering conflict or covering politics, and they have to navigate almost on a daily basis um, what they say on Twitter, how people uh, interpret what they say on Twitter. Uh, Are they willing to be at times opinionists versus... I don't even want to call it sort of straight objective reporting. I don't even know if I buy that word objective, but but just basically sort of factual tweets as opposed to opinion-based tweets. Um, and, you know, I think it's a little different for us in sports in that there's a there's sometimes an assumption by the people reading us that, you know, we're going to have an opinion on sports. But that's very different, obviously, than the benefit of the doubt a lot of news reporters get when it comes to opinions on politics. That's a bit of a filibuster for me. But it's a long way of asking you, Don, how, um, one, how do you approach Twitter? But maybe even beyond that, how do you think Twitter should be approached by journalists? 
Yeah, it's a really tough one. So I approach Twitter um, always knowledgeable that Twitter can hurt me. Twitter can do more damage to me than it can to help me. Um, if you're a young reporter starting out, Twitter is a way to establish your voice, establish your brand. But for a more established reporter like me, it's it can. If I go on there and I get into a war with some troll, or I or I say something uh, that I shouldn't say about politics and and violate ESPN's policy on that, then I can get myself in trouble and hot water pretty quickly. So I so I always see Twitter as very perilous waters there that have to be very carefully navigated. Um, the way journalists approach Twitter, I mean, I don't want to necessarily make sweeping judgments about how people should do it, but one of the things, Richard, and, and I, I, I'm surprised by is any reporter who has to cover a subject and at least attempt to do it in an objective way, try to write stories that are down the middle, but then goes on Twitter and becomes an opinionist or even tries to crack jokes. Um, you know, I often say that sometimes you read Twitter and you see a lot of people auditioning for John Oliver's writer's writing room. You know, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a lot, there's just a lot of people on Twitter. You know, it's, it really is the, the water fountain in a newsroom for folks. It's the digital water fountain that we all gather around and try to um, not only build our brands and, and share stories we've done, I mean, in the last week, all I've been doing is tweeting out backstory, tr the trailer to backstory to try to get people to try to watch the show on Sunday. But it, it's also a way for us to try to impress our friends with our knowledge, with how smart we are, with how funny we are. And as soon as you start using it that way, that's where you start potentially getting into trouble. And, and as I was saying, I think if you're a down the middle political reporter and yet you're going on Twitter and you're cracking jokes um, that are left leaning, uh, you're, I think you're undermining your own brand as a straight news reporter or as objective as one can be, as you said, Richard, in these times. And you're also undermining your newspaper's brand or your media company's brand. I mean, you have to remember you're not just speaking for yourself, but you're speaking for your news organization. And I'm mindful of that every time I write a tweet that I'm not just representing myself, but I'm representing ESPN. And there comes a great responsibility with that. So the advice I would give to any journalist is just be mindful that you're not just speaking for yourself. Any single tweet can demolish your reputation in a matter of a split second. And, but you're also representing your the, the news organization or the, the, the sports network that's uh, it's giving you a job and giving you an incredible platform and, and, and the great privilege to work for them. And, and, you know, I it just don't, you can't take that lightly. Don, one of the things that people at ESPN, including yourself have to navigate is the network has been very clear, Jimmy Pitaro in particular about no pure politics. Now there's a long discussion about what even that means for politics is a very, very subjective um, slogan in my opinion, because I think so much, and again, this is my opinion, this is not Don Van Natta's opinion, so I'm just speaking for me, but the sports and politics, sports and race, sports and social issues are are inevitably rigged, uh, linked, um, in my opinion, and history will sort of teach us that, whether it's Jesse Owens, uh, or Carlos and Smith, or Ali, or Kaepernick, or anything else. So that's sort of the framework of which at least I'm going to uh, asked on Van Atta this question. Um, 
Don, how uh, tricky do you think it is? Uh, maybe tricky is the wrong word. Let me let me let me let me sort of uh, rephrase that. There are people at ESPN who are obviously passionate about uh, things that go beyond, um, quote unquote, just sort of sports on the field. And I think there are a lot of times where uh, ESPNers, who many of which are paid for their opinion, um, could offer something really interesting, poignant, honest, transparent. When the nexus of sports and race or sports and politics uh, hits us, and I think people, your colleague, you and your colleagues now are living in kind of a tricky time in that it, it's, I, I think it's sometimes unclear as to where you can go on these issues. So I wanted to just sort of get your thoughts on what the what your organization has sort of said about this idea in pure politics, and you know it's also. A tricky question for both of us to answer. We are both white males. We are not people of color. And we will have a very, I think, we, we may process things that are said. different. Not I think. We do process things that are probably said differently than a person of color, different experiences. And I think that's factored in all of this as well when it comes to what ESPNers can't say and cannot say, particularly on social media. How have you viewed, if I could ask you from sort of a 10,000-foot mountain, um, ESPN's dicta that there are there will be no pure politics when it when it comes to front facing people like yourself at the network. Yeah, that, those are the rules of the road right now. Uh, Jimmy Pitaro made that very clear uh, when he came in as president in March of 2018. Uh, I I respect those rules of the road. Um, that's what uh, that's what the rules are, and that and and I'm going to abide by them. Uh, but I do believe that any time uh, there is a story that where there is a nexus between sports and politics, sports and culture, uh, that that is something that we have a responsibility to investigate if it's a news story uh, or offer opinions on. And that's where, as you talk about, and to use your word, tricky, it, it does get tricky. Um, although I think, you, I think, you know, we, our judgment is trusted, I believe, by our bosses uh, to sort of know what that is. In the, in the fall of 2017, the national anthem controversy, the things that the president said about it, it was an enormous issue for the National Football League to confront and deal with. They did not handle it well at first. They sort of stumbled out of the gate. Uh, if that story to re- were to repeat itself, a, a similar story this fall, I think we would cover it just as aggressively this fall as we did in 2017. That's clearly one where it's it's not a tricky call. But to your point, Richard, it's, you know, it's there are some folks that feel constrained by that. Uh, you know, we've seen that. And, uh, you know, I respect that. Um, I, you know, what you said about people of color, I, I, you know, look, I'm a white male like you and have been had a lot, all sorts of privileges in my life. I want to hear those voices if, if they want to say it. But if you work at ESPN, if you want to say it, there's there could be consequences. There's a policy. It's a, it's it's one that we all know, uh, sort of on the wall of the clubhouse of ESPN. There's there's really nothing uh, that's unclear about that. I mean, there's sort of trickiness on the margins of some of this stuff, but we all know what that policy is, and I respect the policy, and I, and I'm going to follow it. I mean, you you follow me on Twitter. Do you see me say anything about politics? I I covered politics from. 1997 in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times until 2003 when I went to London. You know, I covered the impeachment of Bill Clinton, 
the aftermath of 9-11, the first uh, few years of the George W. Bush administration. I've written a book about, co-written a book about Hillary Clinton. I have a deep background in politics. I have put that on the shelf um, willingly um, because those are the rules of the road. And, you know, I have a great gig at ESPN, one which I want to continue and a great opportunity here now to do backstory. And uh, and, and so I'm going to follow uh, those rules. And, 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 I, and I think, as you've noticed, most people at ESPN are also doing the same. Yeah, Don, what I think I have taken from your answer is there's no chance I'll ever work at ESPN is basically what that comes down to. Because uh, I do not have your <laughs> your discipline when it comes to tweeting out stuff, but I appreciate well, your answer. Does, does I, take, I think, but, but Richard, let me just say it does take discipline. It, it does. And oh, certainly... I would uh, mass. I would say. I, I mean, I know you you say that and you say that soberly. I I actually think it takes incredible discipline for those of you at that network to not say anything. I just I regardless of where your p- political affiliation is, or maybe that's even sort of a cop out, but it is a. It is a time unlike any other, and you know that obviously from covering uh, politics and other things at the New York Times. So I think it would be one thing to have that discipline in twenty, uh, you know, two thousand and four. I think it takes incredible discipline not to do it in twenty nineteen. So I, in a way, I admire those who have that discipline, even though I think I fundamentally disagree with Jimmy Pataro. Yeah, no, I under I understand your point. And, and yes, I agree that it does take incredible discipline, and, and there are certainly times when I'm tempted to say something. But, you know, my job is not to cover politics. My job is not to be a commentator about politics. I did that in a past life. Um, I was on shows talking about politics. I was on Meet the Press yep. more than once. You know, I, I did that. And, and, and it's a little easier to have the discipline, Richard, to be quite honest with you, if you've already kind of been there, done that. I agree these are... Uh, unbelievable times. I, I, I agree with that. But, um, you know, I'm in a new chapter of my life doing sports investigative reporting and, um, and, with, a, and, and with a great challenge of trying to, you know, get a docuseries off the ground. So I've got plenty to distract me uh, from that. And I'm, and I'm fortunate that I'm able to be distracted. I, I realize that. And, I, and again, I realize it's a privilege. There's no doubt about it. I was, uh, I was really just going to end this on a fun note because uh, one of your colleagues, as you know, Adam Schefter, has been able to uh, live out his, uh, you know, his sort of fantasy dream in reporting by being an NBA sideline reporter for a couple of games. <laughs> yes. Other ESPNers, because of the, you know, just the uh, large amount of rights that you guys own, have been able to sort of delve into some cool places, uh, you know, almost as a one-off. You are the lead investigative reporter at ESPN. Your sort of lane, I think, is very clear in terms of what you do, uh, and you do it exceptionally well. But if, uh, let's say I'm Jimmy Pitaro, and I call you up and I say, Don, you've done, you've done great work for us. Is there anything in the company that you would like to do as sort of a fantasy thing? I will give you a one-off assignment. What would you pick if Pitaro makes that call? You can do from calling Monday Night Football to... Uh, um, you know, uh, doing announcing cornhole. What would you What would you do if Pataro made that call to you and and said, Don, I'm going to grant you that wish? That's a great question. I would have to think about it because I would probably want to draw up a list of about five or six of those jobs that I can think of, and have to narrow it down. I mean, quite frankly, Richard, doing backstory is sort of like that. I mean, this, to, to get the opportunity as an old print guy to host an executive produced this docu-series delving into all of these topics is sort of a, a dream come true. But I would say, you know, 
you know, you mentioned Monday Night Football. I, I'm a big NFL fan, as I think you know. That would probably be near or at the top of the list is to be in the booth for Monday Night Football, whether it's play-by-play or color or even a sideline reporter. If I had one dream job beyond what I'm now doing, probably would be Monday Night Football. All right. Tessator will hear this, Don, and he'll be like, all right. <laughs> I love Joe. Uh, yeah, Joe's Uh-oh. great. <laughs> all right, Don, let, let, us give the, uh, let us give the Chris LaPlock a public relations uh, note here. Don Van Natta has a new docuseries coming up. It is called Backstory. The debut episode is Serena versus the Umpire. It is launching on Sunday, August 18th at 1 p.m. Eastern, 1.30 Pacific on ABC. There'll be multiple re-airs. And that episode is about Serena Williams, the Serena Williams-Naomi Osaka match, and everything that went down. Uh, I have to give ESPN a lot of credit. They have poured some significant resources into Backstory. Don not only traveled for this, he talked to a ton of people. It shot beautifully. So, Don, kudos to the editors, whoever shot this uh, for you in terms of sort of editing and directing. It's really, it's actually a, I'm not just saying this, a kiss your ass. It's a beautiful looking um, uh, series. Who, who You should actually give the shout out to whoever did that because it's a really skilled person. So, John Dahl is uh, the executive, one of the executive producers of Backstory. He, he's the co-creator. It was really his idea. He recruited me last year to do it. Wright Thompson is also an executive producer uh, of Backstory and has been a, a great help. But the the filmmakers are multiple Emmy Award winners. Robert Abbott, who did the Bobby Knight film, the 30 yeah, 30 Bobby right. Knight film. He's the showrunner, incredibly talented guy. And Bluefoot Entertainment of Avon, Connecticut, oh, yeah. led, by, led by Tim and Hillary Horgan. I know you know those folks. They they are the – Tim Horgan is the director the editor, Joe Canali, a great editor. It is beautifully shot, and, and the music and the way it's put together, they have done a tremendous job. I've learned so much. They've worked so hard, and uh, they're, they're really – an, it's an all-star team of talent uh, behind Backstory. And I think I hope Shit. that people will check it out, and they'll, they'll be able to see it for themselves. Yeah, I was going to say, Jesus. I mean, it, it, Connor Shell and Pataro gave you uh, LeBron, Durant, and, uh, and Kawhi <laughs> when it comes to, to – to some the, the production people, that's good. I mean, the Horgans are incredibly talented. Robert Abbott is a significantly talented dude. Um, that's you have a very good team, Don. Uh, I know you will know how fortunate you are, but you know, in terms of the inside baseball of this, I can tell you that the people that are putting together Van Natta's show are really like top class. So that's 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 they, fantastic. They are absolutely, Richard, for sure. All right, Don. Listen, thank you for your time today. Yeah, you're an incredibly busy guy, so I appreciate you giving me uh, 40 minutes um, to uh, talk about your new show. I, I really enjoyed it. I think uh, people will too, especially those who are uh, journalism nerds like myself, and probably the people who listen to this podcast. We'll have you back. Uh, thanks again, Don Vanetta the investigative reporter at ESPN, and now the the new host of Serena vs. the Umpire. Don, it's almost a perfect episode, except for how many times you put Scott Price in there. Otherwise, fantastic. <laughs> uh, fantastic. Oh, Scott Scott rocked the episode, as you know. He was he great. Did. Scott, Scott <laughs> Price, the man who claims he doesn't want to be on television, yet every time I see, I turn my eyes to a television, I see Scott Price waxing about something. All right, Don, thank you very much, and uh, continued success. Thank you, Richard. Appreciate it. We all have a good subscription box, right? From food boxes to wellness boxes, they're all the rage. 
What about a subscription box for your kids that's fun, educational, and helps them develop creative confidence to change the world? Our kids are the future, and it's our job to prepare them for that. It's our job to empower them to be creative, confident, and fearless in all their endeavors with KiwiCo's innovative projects. Now, what is KiwiCo? KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids to make learning about STEAM fun. What's STEAM? Well, it stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, Art, and Math. S-T-E-A-M. Science, Technology, Engineering, Art, and Math. It's uh, Kiwi's designed by experts and tested by kids, so no need to research or worry about gathering all the supplies. Now, there are seven lines here to choose from for kids of all ages, 0 to 16. Tadpole, koala, kiwi, atlas, doodle, tinker, and eureka crates. That's the seven lines. There's a new box each month. And so if you're pressed for time, no worries. Each month, the kid in your life receives a new, fun, and engaging project with all the supplies they need to challenge themselves creatively. What does each box come with? All supplies needed for that month's project, detailed, easy-to-follow instructions written for kids, and an educational magazine to learn even more about that crate's theme. Best of all, you can do it together. As a parent, we all know we're super busy, always on the go. It could be tough to go grocery shopping, work, feed your family, go to that soccer or hockey practice, and get in some quality time together. Here, you can work together with your child to create an engaging and exciting project. KiwiCo is a convenient, affordable way to encourage your children to be anything they want to be. There's no commitment. You can cancel at any time. Monthly options start at $19.95 a month, including shipping. For my listeners, go to KiwiCo.com slash podcast. Let me give that to you. K-I-W-I-C-O.com slash podcast to get your first month free. And every day counts when it comes to making a difference. So don't miss out on this amazing opportunity. Again, go to KiwiCo.com slash podcast. K-I-W-I-C-O.com slash podcast and get your first month free. That's KiwiCo.com slash podcast. KiwiCo.com slash podcast. All right, my thanks to Don Van Natta, and now we move to our second guest, and that is Chelsea James, who was a guest on this podcast before, but at that time, she was the beat reporter for the Washington Nationals for the Washington Post. She has since moved to covering the 2020 presidential campaign for the Washington Post, and she joins me on the Sports Media Podcast to talk about what's been a pretty remarkable transition uh, Chelsea, welcome back. You're not in Iowa. Congrats. You're in Washington D.C. for a day. You're, I'm, I'm <laughs> no, I've recently returned. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm back home for a bit. But Iowa has definitely become, you know, the equivalent of like a spring training home at this point. I feel like I, I live there now. Enjoy the, enjoy that those the state fair fried foods, which you'll be eating uh, for, for from now until the end of uh, of that primary season. All right. So I want to start off with. Um, very much just sort of an open-ended question, and please go as long as you want, but how has the transition been from covering baseball to covering the 2020 presidential campaign, and in your case, uh, with a specific to the Kamala Harris uh, uh, campaign? It's been, the only way I can describe it is very different, but also not as different as you might think. You know, I think that there are some obvious similarities between, you know, spending all your time around one baseball team and and in my case, spending a lot of time around um, the Kamala Harris campaign. You know, these are, you know, both baseball teams and presidential campaigns um, for different reasons and with different stakes. Um, 
you know, have incentive to, to not tell reporters things, to not be transparent, to sort of, you know, try to guide their narratives in different ways. And, and so in that way, a lot of the effort is spent trying to sort through that. Um, and whether, you know, you're doing that effectively or not is up, up to everyone to decide. But, um, you know, I think in that way, it's very similar. You sort of have to be a skeptic um, as much as possible, despite spending a lot of time um, with the people um, of whom you have to be skeptical. And then I think there's some really obvious, you know, differences. I think the the main one um, that I've really wrestled with is is that there's no score in politics. You know, at the end of the day, there's no number you can present and say this is what happened. It's it's by its nature until an election, pretty arbitrary. And I think that that's something um, that I've just wrestled with and lost a lot of sleep over. Is sort of, you know, trying to make sure that you know, in a very arbitrary world, um, the coverage isn't set, that it's it's fact-based and straightforward um, and not drawing conclusions that can't be supported. And while that should seem, you know, fairly easy to do, it's, it's actually not when you have, you know, you're, you're asking experts who have their own opinions and sort of everything is opinion-based and, um, and even polls, you, you have to sort of question and, and look into their biases. So I think just kind of uh, there's a lot more to sort through um, it's harder to decide what's true, what people think is true, what you think is true, um, and how those things should interact in a story that you're presenting as, you know, a, a true, fair, you know, story to people who rely on you to be those things. One of the things that's interesting to me, Chelsea, is um, how you were perceived is not the right word, but when you first started covering the presidential campaign. How did fellow reporters see you as someone coming coming from sports? And then maybe even more interestingly, how did the people in the political world that you're covering see your previous experience covering the Nationals? Everyone's really nice about it. You know, no one's looking at you and saying, oh, my God, how did you end up here? Um, you know, I was doing enough of that myself, I think. But um, it, it's hard to say. I think there was definitely some skepticism. You know, I think. Um, I've been really fortunate to end up here um, for, you know, this was not something that was always on my radar like it has been for a lot of reporters. And I think for some of those people, it would be fair to assume that, you know, they're kind of looking at me like how, you know, where did this girl come from? Um, But I never felt any of that firsthand, really. You know, there were a few instances on Twitter where someone would say, you know, why are they moving the baseball, you know, reporter to politics? Are they not taking it seriously? And, And to that, you just have to you can't say much. You got to just kind of show that you belong. And and that's a long process. So I think I tried to kind of not worry about that stuff as much as possible. Um, But there is, there is a proving yourself process that I certainly have not completed. And in terms of the campaigns, I think, you know, we were wondering the other day, actually, if if Senator Harris, who I've spent a lot of time covering, even realizes that that's where I come from. Right. You know, they, they have so many things to worry about that the candidates themselves probably aren't aren't thinking that way. Um, but as for her staff, they've, they've all been, you know, to my face, very fair and very, you know, kind of respectful and interested. And I think for a lot of people in politics, which, you know, um, is still a very, you know, white male world. Um, there are a lot of people who love baseball and know a lot about it. And we're familiar with me from that world. So I would say at least in the things that have been, said outwardly to me. Um, you never know what kind of else is going on there, but um, it's actually been sort of helpful as an in and a way to start conversations that um, lead people away from politics, because I think in, 
you know, one thing that people in politics have in common with other people that people don't realize is that they don't want to talk about politics all the time either. So it's kind of an unrefreshing way for them to think about something else that a lot of them pay attention to, to say, oh, yeah, I, I covered the Nationals and, and here's where I think Bryce Harper was going, which was the whole question I got most early on. <laughs> the um, I think one of the things that I would imagine has helped you, even though obviously the content is different, is that when you're covering baseball, obviously one uh, deadline writing is crazy. So you have a ton of experience in being able to write fast when it comes to breaking news. Two, um, when you're working the clubhouse, as you know, uh, you're dealing with people from all different um, uh, backgrounds, ethnicities, diversity. And so you just, you really have to be able to talk to and approach people um, who are unlike you. And you certainly know that obviously as a woman being in a, uh, in a male clubhouse. My sense is like those, con- even though the content is different, like that kind of skill set, I feel like totally transfers and probably has helped you in certain parts during your coverage of uh, of the presidential campaign. Is that the case? And if so, do you have some specifics and how that manifested? Yeah, I think it really does help. I think you're right. I think it's probably something that um, because it's such a part of the day to day work that I probably have underestimated. But, um, you know, I think it's true that. I was fairly out of place in a major league baseball clubhouse as, you know, um, you know, a, a young, you know, mid twenties woman who had never played major league baseball. That was not, you know, the, the climate that I would have ended up in any other way. And so I think you did learn to sort of look around and realize that they're as corny as it sounds like these are just people and you can talk to them about things and there are overlapping interests and experiences Um, And in my case, many of those overlapping experiences centered around the experience of being on the road and being, you know, in baseball and and kind of that grind. And you realize what a bonding experience that is um, and and a good topic of conversation. And I think on the campaign trail, when it comes to staff and when it comes to um, the people involved directly in the campaign, you sort of remember that, oh, these are people who are also sad that they're on the road all the time or, you know, who probably want to be home and talk about their families or talk about anything else than their job and, and for a little bit just to get that reprieve. And so you kind of it, it's it's not as intimidating. You realize that you have more in common um, than you might think. And it obviously helps, you know, talking to voters in places. You know, I, I had not spent a lot of time in Iowa before this experience and and. You know, I think when you haven't been somewhere or been in a community, you sort of assume things are more different than they actually are. Um, and to have had that experience in baseball of realizing, you know, I can joke around with a you know 19-year-old kid from the Dominican Republic who had never spent much time in America and doesn't know a lot of English just as well as I can, you know, a, a more, you know, polished veteran who's, you know, been in the spotlight for his whole life. You know, you realize once you can do that, you can probably handle some of these places you've never been and the similarities are there. And um, it's it's definitely borne out on the campaign trail. One of the things that um, and again, I'm curious if this was the case with you, you know, if you have to parachute in sports into a story or a sport that you don't know, you know, what you do, obviously, is you read as much as you can on the subject. Uh, you try to talk to people uh, who are within that world just to get some kind of base to write maybe authoritative is not the best phrase but at least sort of with some kind of um you know some kind of knowledge base so that you can provide that for the reader when when you knew for a little bit that you were going to obviously be doing this in january of 2019 but how did you prepare for covering politics did you talk to other people at the post who have uh, obviously all these years of experience and 
um, and covering the the highest levels of politics and and government at the country? Did you read as much as you could? Uh, was it a combination of all those things? It was definitely a combination of all of them. You know, I read some of the kind of like seminal campaign trail books over the years. I was carrying those around with me early on. Um, I I had really sort of maybe last summer started to think, you know, just based on conversations I've had with post um, editors that this might be coming. So I you know, sort of changed my podcast habits and, and my daily reading habits and, and tried to make sure I was absorbing as much as I could. Um, but for me, a lot of it has been reading, um, I, you know, reading a lot of background and history and just trying to know everything I can about the people involved before I show up. Um, and that, I think, has, has worked to an extent. But then there's also sort of this, you know, the prevailing wisdom I got from a lot of people who had done it before is that we've never seen anything like what we're seeing right now. So precedent actually, you know, being free of that um, you know, that kind of adherence to traditional ways of doing this, to traditional ways of thinking might actually be a real positive. So I leaned on that. You know, maybe they were just telling me that, um, you know, I remember someone said, we, we're, we're moving you over because we think you, you can ask the dumb questions that, that aren't actually dumb. You know, the questions that no one would ask if they'd been here all along, but, but might matter now. Um, you know, the questions people wish they'd asked, um, you know, as Donald Trump was, was rising, that that maybe would have allowed them to predict what happened better. But, um, you know, I, I have assured them that I am very capable of asking dumb questions. So I've tried to make that, um, a stable, but, um, yeah, it's, it, a lot of talking to people yielded, just keep your eyes open, trust your instincts. Um, so beyond that, I just tried to read and know the people I was dealing with as much as possible, but, you know, there's just no substitute for kind of living it and, and the knowledge you get on the ground and, and being involved every day. Yeah, as I've gotten older, I've kind of come to the thesis that there really is, are no dumb questions. And oftentimes what yeah. cynically someone thinks yeah. is a dumb question, as you know, could ultimately provide one of the most insightful, illuminating answers. So um, when someone does that in baseball, you know, I know there's some reporters like who roll their eyes. I always love the questions that are just ridiculous or, you know, you think are yep. quote unquote dumb because you the, the person is so used to answering questions that are uh, that they expect that it throws the subject off sometimes right. and you, you get something interesting. One of the things that I admired you um, for in the last couple months that I've seen uh, on Twitter is your discipline. I, this is the reason, Chelsea, I don't think I could ever cover politics. I, I, I would tweet something out that basically the paper would end up removing me from the political beat because I, I just I don't know if I have that discipline. So um, I want to ask you a couple questions about social media. How how have you stayed um, discipline on social media where what you're tweeting out is almost uh, all fact-based as opposed to getting into any kind of opinion? Yeah, well, I think one of the first things um, is that I had a an incident early on where I did, didn't do that. Um, I One of the first events I ever covered of Senator Harris's, um, a lot of her sorority sisters, um, the AKA sorority, were there. It was at Howard University, and they were just going wild for her, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, the first presidential candidate. And so, and I was just surprised to see such a presence. It was like, you thought Justin Bieber was up there and I used the word that they were shrieking, which was a horrible word choice. And what I learned later and should have learned before was that their kind of sorority call is this, this thing called skiwi. It's very high. And, you know, you, you could sound like they were just yelling, but it's like a meaningful call. And I had never been exposed to it before. I didn't know about it. 
Um, and rightfully so, I was, you know, really kind of hammered by everything from The View to Twitter, um, people I knew, people I didn't, for just kind of being an ignorant idiot. And I was, you know. Um, and I think I learned from that, you know, my you can have very good intentions and still not recognize your own blind spots. Um, and, you know, in baseball, there, there were many blind spots. You know, there's a score, there's an answer, there's traditions that we all are sort of familiar with. But when you open the conversation as broadly as politics requires, like inevitably, you're going to have blind spots. And I was not familiar with the sorority at all, um, which is no excuse, you know, because it, and it, it just like taught me and it, it stuck with me and I think about it every day. And it's a terrible feeling when I think about it um, because I'm ashamed of it and that mistake. But it's just like a very strong reminder that I don't know what I don't know. And if I'm going to say something, I, I want to be really sure of it. And, you know, I, I don't wish that sort of experience on anyone, but I do hope that people are able to <laughs> learn that lesson without, um, you know, offending and, and hurting so many people because it's, it's, it's really valuable. And I think we don't, we really don't think about that enough of, you know, what we don't know. So that would be the first way that I've stayed disciplined is just sort of not wanting to repeat that and, and understanding that I don't know what I'm looking at all the time. Um, and I think the other is that I, I very early on decided I was never going to use adjectives if I could avoid it. Um, because, you know, again, like a pitcher can have a bad game and I can show you the statistics, but if an event is bad or someone says something that you think, um, is funny and it's not, you know, it's just so subjective and, and you don't know what you don't know. So I've stayed away from adjectives as much as possible tried not to spend a lot of time on Twitter, you know, getting into fights with people because ultimately I can't control anything anyone says about what I say. I can just control what I say and, and, you know, trust my intentions and, and anything beyond that, I think is kind of a slippery slope that, that doesn't benefit anyone. Yeah. It's interesting. I remember that, that uh, I'm looking at it now, obviously that came on uh, January 9th, uh, which is very, very early in your tenure there. Um, and obviously people who were part of uh, Alpha Kappa Alpha, um, I mean, really let you have it. You were, you, you know, as I'm looking at some of the clips, as you remember, really crushed by um, some black-oriented publications like The Root. Um, if there's anything good from this, and I think you, 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 what you stated was really thoughtful and well said, um, that maybe it came early in your tenure as opposed to a lesson maybe late because, like you said, you know, you're always going to remember this. And it was something I think that happened maybe in your first two weeks or three weeks on on the job. I almost think to myself, sometimes if like something like that happens, you really want it early because it stays as a reminder for you, maybe even years later uh, about and this this we're all guilty of this sort of not knowing what we don't know. And sort of before you put put it on a public microphone, double checking what you don't know. Yeah, exactly. And I think, too, it just like was a really um I mean, again, I certainly wish it hadn't happened and that I hadn't, um, you know, offended people like I did because it was a really dumb tweet that I can do nothing but call dumb. But I think, you know, another thing that it really taught me is that, like, there's a lot more that goes into confronting bias than, you know, thinking you're not racist or thinking you have good intentions or, you know, I you really have to dig in and say, what do I not know? Like, what have I not been required to learn that maybe a person of color has been required to learn about white culture, you know? Um, And just like kind of the realization that the discomfort I felt in that moment 
is nothing compared to the discomfort of groups that feel marginalized or, you know, all these things. It's like there's so much that comes with a moment like that that makes you really evaluate how the media does what it does, how people who really want to do, you know, I, I consider myself someone who really wants to do this right and be fair and, and um, you know, kind of tackle some of those biases. And even with those intentions, I made a big mistake like that. And that's that's kind of jarring. But I think, you know, for the better that we have to realize that wanting to do well um, is no substitute for actually digging in and trying to confront the things that we don't know and why we don't know them. Chelsea, how would you compare it sort of its base level um, baseball Twitter to politics Twitter? You know, there are there are similarities and that I think you can't when you have people that are very supportive of a baseball team or a candidate, they're not going to hear a bad word about it, or they're not going to hear that their take is wrong. Um, and I think that the way that manifests itself in baseball is that, you know, fans are going to be really angry and tell you, you know, you got to fire the manager, right? Like if you, you know, you publish an article that says, Oh, maybe it's not the manager's fault. And they're going to come after you and say, no, it's, it's definitely the manager's fault. Like this guy's got to go. And, and at the expense of nuance, in a lot of cases, on that platform. Um, I'm not saying that's fans in general, but on that platform. And I think that in political Twitter, it's very similar in that, you know, if you try to hold X person accountable, write something that's maybe not flattering, even if you try to do it fairly, the reaction is going to be, oh, but look at this other thing that X candidate's done that's, you know, worse. And it's like, sure, but, like, are you arguing that that um, – that that should be the standard, right? That because someone else did something, your your candidate that you support um, should be let off the hook. And, and sort of there's this double standard um, that basically, you know, manifests itself in the same kind of um, uncompromising anger, I think. And it's frustrating in that way because you, you feel like people don't appreciate nuance or don't appreciate attempts to sort of be fair. But I think um, I also understand that there's passion involved, both the baseball fans and and people that support political candidates. And, um, you know, you definitely feel it in both venues. You know, anyone who tells you that they don't feel it, um, the, the impact of kind of the social media blowback or, or response or or even the, the response for the better. You know, if you write an article and all of a sudden, you know, an entire campaign's worth of people tweets it out, you're like, oh, wow, there was a lot of support for this article. And then you have to step back and be like, oh, you know, this is like tweeting that the, the Nats are going to win the World Series. You know, obviously this is, you know, that's why that took off. It has nothing to do with what you actually wrote. So it's just a, it's a minefield, but it's it's a lot of passion on both sides um, that can really, you know, test your ability to hold your ground. What is the, what is um, the post told you about um, your sort of, let's say, like, uh, next 12 to 16 months. Um, are you covering the Harris campaign for as long as the Harris campaign goes? Or do you uh, uh, just basically what 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 do you know or what can you tell us, at least at this point, about your assignment, heading, your immediate assignment heading forward? Well, fortunately, I'm not important enough to have any secret grand plan that I couldn't disclose. Um, but I, I think uh, as far as I know, you know, I'm covering this, the Harris campaign until I'm not. Um, I think we have really haven't really assigned a lot of people to campaigns um, and it's fluid. And I'm sure we'll, we'll kind of move people around just so they can see other people. But, um, you know, for now, I've I've spent a lot of time with them. And I guess the idea would be to continue to do that <laughs> as long as it exists. But, you know, what happens when it stops? Um, if it stops, 
uh, I don't know, you know, what happens after the November 2020 election is, is even more up in the air. Um, I certainly don't think I've, you know, proven that I belong yet in any way. And so that's kind of something that I is still on the agenda. But, um, you know, before this all started, we had talked about kind of leaving that open ended and, and whether that means, you know, continuing in politics, going back to sports, um, doing something that we haven't talked about, you know, remains to be seen. But I would assume that if if Senator Harris continues to do well and I continue to spend um, the bulk of my time with that campaign, that um, I would follow them to to the end, whatever that end may be. And if it's, um, you know, if it's if the end doesn't come in November, then, you know, I guess maybe there'd be a chance that you'd go on with them. But um yeah, it's totally open-ended, which is really weird because I'm used to a season and an off-season and uh, a very predictable rhythm, and this is this is very day-to-day. So here's where I sort of want to conclude. Have you, and again, I, I realize that you've only been covering this you know, January to August, so we're talking, I think if my math is right here, basically like eight months or so. Um, have, have, do you have sort of any kind of internal sense yet, Chelsea, of what you are, what you've enjoyed more? whether it's covering sports and specifically the rhythms of a day-to-day beat in sports or politics and specifically the rhythms of a sort of a day-to-day campaign beat? I I don't. Um, A lot of people have asked me that. It's really hard. It's it's different because I think the things that I enjoyed about baseball um, were in a strange way, sort of its parallels to the real world, Um, you know, that you play every day, you know, it's, um, there are ups and downs and, and they're fun when it's good and it's, it's hard when it's not, but ultimately you kind of have to see the long game. And I think in campaign life, all those things apply. Um, they're more real, right? The stakes are higher that, you know, when, when these campaigns have a bad day, it, it you know, <laughs> kind of thrusts their entire existence into question. Um, but it is a long game. So all of that is there, but I think the difference is that, um, I've never been through it before, so I, I don't know that I, I feel that rhythm yet, right? That I'm sort of kind of assuming that something is a big deal, but I don't know. You know, I I know that the I, – I can't, for example, look at the, you know, campaign the way I can look at the Nationals and say, you know, Steven Strasburg's going to get hurt in September. The bullpen's going to – they're going to add a bullpen, you know, piece at the deadline, and it's probably not going to be enough, right, because that's the predictable <laughs> – national, you know, way of going. I don't know what I'm looking for in this. So I think that makes it a little more fraught for me and, and just like a little more um, certainly stressful, but but I can't really assess it yet because I, I haven't, um, I don't know what I'm looking at yet for better or worse. And I, I'll be really interested to see how that changes over the next few months and particularly like, you know, as this gets down to one nominee, you know, I'll look back and be able to say, oh, wow, that was fun. And if I did it again, here's what I'd do. But Right now, I'm sort of in it and, um, you know, still kind of feel like I'm you know, chicken with my head cut off, trying to run around and understand everything before it's over. <laughs> All right. Final one. This is incredibly unfair of me to ask this, but mm-hmm. national, the Nationals are, I think, I should probably pull this up. Should, this, is, this is a bad example of not doing research, Chelsea. I think they're uh, no. two, are they two up in the wild card? What, they're, very, they're up in the wild card, but they're... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, this is called filling time here as I talk to you, they, as I pull this up. Okay. They're, as we tape this, they are one game up in the mm-hmm. wild card, six back of Atlanta. I realize now that you are a highfalutin political reporter, but I'm going to ask, <laughs> but I'm, but I'm going to ask you, will the Washington Nationals make the playoffs? 
I think so. I do. And why is that? Because uh, they've been through the worst. You know, I think that at some point they've, you know, they've now had last year and kind of the downs at the beginning of this year to go through. And it seems like they've found a good mix of, of veterans and young players. And, um, you know, if Scherzer's okay, if Strasburg's okay, and if Doolittle's okay, I think they have a, they have a real chance and um, just a very different vibe than they did um, at times last year and in years prior. And the kind of vibe where you don't know you're not supposed to win. So, you know, you can probably just kind of ride it out a little bit. But I think they set expectations low enough early in the season that now they're sort of underdogs coming back, you know, coming back up. And that's the role they've always played really well. I think I agree with you because I expect kind of the pitchers who maybe have not pitched great early in the year to, especially Scherzer and others, to sort of have mm-hmm. a really good final stretch. So right. I'm with you. Uh, although the National League, um, between the Nationals and the Giants, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight teams within three and a half games for yeah. the wild card. So uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So when you're in Iowa, you know, one of those state fairs eating like a corn dog with bacon, make, make sure you keep your eye on uh, – you know, what's going on in baseball, so you don't lose that, Chelsea. For sure. Actually, the first hotel <laughs> I ever checked into in Iowa, the first question the manager asked me, and I don't know how he knew that I should know this, was was where is Bryce Harper going? And so um, I've stayed there forever, ever since, because I felt really special that he knew who I was. But, um, yeah, it, it's it's inescapable, and that's a good thing. By the way, what is I should ask you before we let you go, what is the craziest food that you've seen at the Iowa State? I've never been to Iowa. What is the craziest food yeah. that you've seen at the Iowa State Fair? Oh my gosh, there's just a lot of, uh, man, that's a great question. If, if you can think of something fried, it's there. I mean, I think the thing that was really <laughs> telling, I can't think of one, but there is an app that tells you where food is at the Iowa State Fair. And it, the toggles are like, fry, like, I think it was like food, drink, and then foods on a stick. And there were like 160 wow. foods on a stick. So you could literally like pick that option. But I mean, there was, like, fried bacon-wrapped, whatever you wanted. Um, I mean, I couldn't even pick just one, but they were all, uh, frankly, a little bit nauseating when I was there at 9.30 in the morning. <laughs> yeah, well, this is what – I get it. You know, this is, like, why the candidates, like, it is, like, they got to, like, uh, do their part to, like, go to the go to the gym or whatever because it's, like, it's a killer, like, weight gain given all that fried food. But they got to – they gotta, they gotta, they gotta partake in it because the locals consider that very important. So it's a very interesting little slice, slice of Americana. Chelsea James is a Washington Post reporter, covering the 2020 presidential campaign. Before that, she's a longtime beat reporter for the Washington Nationals. She was also previously a guest on this podcast right before she um, she jumped on this beat. So you can head back in the archives and check out um, how she was feeling prior to this, and now eight months later, this interview. Uh, Chelsea, listen. Continued success. I think what, I, as I told you last time, I think what you're doing is is amazing, and it's just such such an interesting transition to me. And um, and I wish you uh, nothing but the best of luck and a little bit of sleep as the presidential campaign gets crazy over the next uh, couple months. Thanks for coming back again on the Sports Media Podcast, and hopefully, I check back with you as we get close to the actual election. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Don Van Natta and uh, Chelsea James for two interesting conversations. Two, uh, two reporters who have uh, morphed between sports and news and politics. So uh, this is really interesting for me, Really, two really smart people and well worth following and reading them. Um, if you like this kind of content, our previous podcast before this one was John O'Rand of the Sports Business Daily on um, NFL and college football viewership, why Sunday Night Baseball sort of continues to get crushed, the prospect of the Pac-12 doing 9 a.m. Eastern Time kickoffs. Um, before that, James Andrew Miller and Jim Trotter on Dan Lebertard, ESPN, and um, how to sort of navigate that world if you're an ESPNer. Before that, how boxing gets covered in 2019 with Mike Coppinger and Lance Pugmire. And then just go down the archives, Conrad Thompson, Bob Lee, um, if you're a wrestling fan, Renee Young, and Paul Heyman, Taylor Twelman. Uh, again, if you like this kind of stuff, please give us a review on the Sports Media with Richard Deitch uh, page on uh, Apple Podcast or Stitcher. Uh, obviously, good ratings keep this podcast alive. That's what uh, Cadence 13 wants. So I appreciate that. Um, let me thank my producer, Patrick Antonetti. Thanks to everybody at Cadence 13. Thanks to Chelsea and Don. And we'll see you again on the Sports Media with Richard Deitch podcast.